Thank you, Marty. Refiner's fire. Purify our hearts. Our one desire is to be holy. That's what you just sang. Is it true? I found myself correcting the words to line up with the intent, the honest intent of my heart, which was that I want to want that. But I couldn't say it was my heart's one desire. So then in the midst of that song, I had to ask forgiveness for the fact that it wasn't my one desire, my central, most driving desire, and try to confess it as sin so that I could confess it as a change. What does it mean to be holy? We talked on Monday about an episode in the life of Jesus that John takes as the pivot point in Jesus' entire public ministry, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And today I'd like to build some reflections off of that. But first, a summary. Jesus encounters death at a very intimate level. His dear friend Lazarus has died. And he waits a student shared with me that a new thought that perhaps he waited not to show favoritism. Perhaps, in a sense, he waited to show, I'm not just going to rush off because he's my dear friend. In either event, Jesus did it, he says, to show the glory of God. Lazarus dies. Jesus goes. And he meets the two sisters. First, Martha, who comes and meets him eyeball to eyeball, who says, if you'd been here, Lord, my brother wouldn't have died. And he says, but he'll rise again, Martha. And she said, I believe that. I believe he'll rise at the last day. And Jesus said those astounding words. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Anyone who puts their trust in me will never die. Do you believe this? He said to Martha. She said, I believe you're the Messiah. I believe you're the Christ. I believe you're the Son of God. And I believe that whatever you ask God, he'll do. Her theology was solid, but inadequate. Then her sister Mary came out, and in, in characteristic style of that passionate lover of Jesus Christ, Mary doesn't meet him eyeball to eyeball, but falls at the feet of Jesus, weeping at his feet, saying the exact same words as her sister. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And she weeps. Jesus says, where have you laid him? They say, come and see, ironically, the very words that Jesus had said when the early disciples asked about his life and ministry. He said, come and see. Come and see life. And now they're saying to life himself, come and see death. He goes to the tomb. In a few short words, he says, Lazarus, and he screams it, come out, come forth. And there must have been a moment between his words and the shuffling sounds from within the tomb. And Lazarus shuffles out, bound up like a mummy, grave clothes still draping off of him. And Jesus simply says, take off his grave clothes and unbind him. That's a story. And by story, I don't mean it didn't happen. That's the account that we looked at that John uses to say that Jesus is the troubler of death. 
Jesus is the tornado that sweeps into the center of our tawdry lives and calls us out from the tomb. Jesus is the one who won't leave things dead if he has any say in it at all. He's the disturber of the status quo. He stands before us as life himself and calls us forth. I want to use this image, though I don't think it was the primary intent of John in this passage. I want to make that clear. But I want to use this image to apply some things that I think standing before the living person of Jesus Christ as the Westmont community, several things that it might mean in our lives. That image of Lazarus still wrapped in his grave clothes, still smelling of death, and Jesus having given him life, telling the others to unwrap him, to free him from the clothes of death so that he could live the life that God had given. What would it mean for us at Westmont especially? to take off the grave clothes. You see, Christ stands before us. The primary point of John in this, in this episode of the life of Jesus is very clear. Life stands in front of you, and life is a person. It is not a concept. It is not an ideology. It is not a career. It is not a, um, a, a mate for life. It is not your intelligence. It is not your strength. It is not your youth. It is a person. Life itself is found in Jesus Christ and nowhere else. Paul echoes that thought in Colossians when he says, In Christ lie all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And moreover, your own completeness is only realized in Christ. That's the point of John. Right at this culminating point, right at this resurrection where Jesus brings life from death. John is saying to you, will you come forth from the grave? Will you believe? Will you believe in life himself? Or will you go about your thin and tawdry life as it is? I want to suggest two ways we can take off the grave clothes, which would be an image for becoming holy here at Westmont, specifically at Westmont, for students, for staff, for faculty. What are some ways? There are many, but I want to suggest two. The first is that we need to take care of shoddy thinking. And the second is that we need to take care of trite loving. Shoddy thinking and trite loving are two parts of our grave clothes that need to be stripped away. We're told by Jesus in three places that the most important thing we can do, much more important than success, the most important thing is to love God. We know that. He said it on so many occasions. The first and great commandment is to love God. But how are we to love him? With all of our heart and with all of our mind. How do we love God with our minds? At a college like Westmont, we're supposed to meld the two together, heart and mind. We're not supposed to only be for the mind or only be for the heart. And I hear comments around campus. Well, I'm taking this course or I'm taking that course. I'm jumping through that hoop. What a sad thought. 
on jumping through that hoop. The courses are designed to make us learn to think, to use our minds, to hone them razor sharp. As C.S. Lewis has said, let's have none of this nonsense. If God wants you, he wants you brains and all. You can't sanctify your heart without sanctifying your mind. We're to love God with all of our minds. My thesis is that we must become lovers of the truth who are learning to be truly loving. The great mathematician Pascal, who died at 38 or 39 years old, perhaps the greatest thinker of that dawning scientific age, in the last few years of his life, had an incredible encounter with Jesus Christ. It was, it was a two-hour mystical experience. And this great philosopher and mathematician and scientist wrote it down in one word. He wrote fire, F-I-R-E, fire. And then he said, not the God of the philosophers and the scholars, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he took that little piece of paper and he sewed it into every coat he wore so that till his dying day, he would remember that God was a consuming fire. Now, here was a man who'd lived his life for scholarship. He was not taking a swipe at scholarship. He was the greatest mathematical mind of that time, and, and many of the laws of physics are centered on some of his teachings still to this day. He was not taking a swipe at learning. He was saying that at the heart of it, there is a fire, there is a God, there is life itself standing before him. And he began to write out his pensées, which means thoughts. He intended to write a book. He died before he could. And all we have are these little scribbles of notes, hundreds of them, that were to be the format of that book. Let me read one section from that. He says this, Pascal, there are only three sorts of people. Try to figure out which one you are. You're one of these three kinds. There are only three sorts of people. Those who have found God and serve him. Those who are busy seeking him and have not found him. And those who live without either seeking or finding him. The first, those who have found and serve God, are reasonable and happy. The last, those who live without either seeking or finding God, are foolish and unhappy. And those in the middle, the ones who are busy seeking but have not yet found God, are unhappy but reasonable. He goes on to say, truth is so obscured nowadays and lies so well hidden that unless we love the truth, we shall never recognize it. I make an absolute distinction between those who strive with all their might to learn the truth and those who live without troubling themselves or thinking about it. You see, that's the distinction. Are we seekers who have not yet found but are truly seeking? Are we seekers who have found and are continuing to find, I would add? Or are we those who just aren't troubling ourselves? who live the unexamined life, as the great philosopher tells us, that life is not worth living at all. Which are you? I've wondered if there isn't a fourth category. I see it in Christendom a lot. People who say they found, but are not seekers. 
I think that's our greatest danger at Westmont College. To think that we've found and to cease seeking, to cease inquiry, to cease a passionate search for truth. If God's infinite, we'll be learning infinitely about him, about his love, about his thoughts, about his mind for our lives in this world. Peter Kraft, in a commentary on Pascal's Ponce, says this. He's a, a modern philosopher at Boston University. Actually, he's been a lecturer here at Westmont. Peter Kraft says this about this distinction between seekers and non-seekers. He says, the absolute distinction, which will become the distinction between the heavenly and the hellish, is not between believers and unbelievers but between seekers and non-seekers. For all unbelievers who seek will eventually become believers who find, according to the very highest authority, Jesus. The great divide, the eternal divide, is not between theists and atheists or between happiness and unhappiness, but between seekers or lovers and non-seekers or non-lovers of the truth, for God is truth. If we do not love the truth, we will not seek it, Crave says. If we do not seek it, we will not find it. If we do not find it, we will not know it. And if we do not know it, we failed our fundamental task in time and quite likely in eternity. If we do not love the truth, we will not seek it. We need to become better at thinking, especially at a college. Not hoop jumpers, not test passers, but people passionately in love with finding the truth. Let me suggest some possibilities for taking off those grave clothes. First, develop an insatiable and creative curiosity. Develop an insatiable and creative curiosity. Second, Desire, be driven by a desire to know. Be driven by a desire to know. Third, ask more questions and give fewer answers. Fourth, have a humility about your own grasp on the truth today. Have a humility about how much you really know. And fifth, which really is a corollary to that, deepen your respect for those who've had more time in the quest for truth. You know, one of the things that disturbs me as a chaplain as I've looked at this campus for 10 years is what I consider to be a fairly thin level of respect for professors, a fairly casual attitude toward their knowledge. And even sometimes in students, a sense of superiority as if the student knows more than the professor about a subject and a discipline that the professor has given his or her life to. I think even in some small ways, we could do well to show respect. The way we address one another. The way we ask questions. Arriving at class on time. Actually doing the homework even if it's not going to be on the test because you love knowledge. Six, become people who ask the childlike 
question over and over again, why? Why? You believe in predestination? Why? You believe Jesus was God and man? Why? You, you believe that salvation is only in Christ? Why? Seven, strip off the grave clothes of skepticism. The worst thing a liberal arts education could do for you is turn you into a skeptic. A skeptic is someone, in my opinion, who is trained in spotting error but never spots the truth. Someone who's trained in winning arguments and debates but not trained in winning themselves over to the side of truth. Someone who's trained in tearing down but not building up. And young students and young scholars are particularly vulnerable to this temptation. It's much easier to look smart by tearing something down. Eight, be open to truth from any source. Don't look for the perfect source before you'll accept truth. You can probably find some truth in almost anything. And nine and last, be suspicious of any claim for complete truth from any one human source. I get very nervous when any one church, when any one individual, when any one denomination claims they have the grasp on the truth. The three virtues to develop would be humility, desire, and maybe the most difficult, discipline. You cannot be a passionate pursuer of truth without creating in your life. This semester, discipline. That means that you do something when you don't want to do it. And you do it in a strategic and a tactically sufficient way to accomplish the task. And now I'm making a tactical decision on time. Those grave clothes have to do with learning to think well. Thomas Merton raised this question. He said, what good is knowledge that does not lead to love? We not only need to learn to think well, we need to learn to love well. Knowledge that doesn't lead to love is not a knowledge that loves the truth, because the truth is a person, Jesus Christ, who was love in action. And Paul says, if I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, that's quite a scholar. That's quite a student. That's a 4-0. If I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge but have not love, I'm nothing. Absolutely nothing. On the one end of the spectrum, we have the person who thinks so much that they fall in love with concepts but never become loving. And on the other end of the spectrum, we have the person who tries to love without thinking. And so they love very poorly. I'd like to illustrate the first part of the continuum. And the next time I speak to you, I made a tactical decision, I'll illustrate the other side. I'd like to do a four-minute reading from The Great Divorce, a book by C.S. Lewis, about a bus ride from hell to heaven. And in heaven, the people from hell get a second chance in this fantasy. 
And the people from hell, when they get to heaven, find that everything there is so real. For example, the grass is so real that it goes right through their feet. And it hurts. And they actually begin to see that they can see through one another because they're so unsubstantial. They're so unreal. And the image Lewis is trying to develop is that anything that is not of God is less real, not more real. Sin is less real, less tangible, less satisfying. And so these people in hell get a bus ride to heaven and they're met there by someone they knew on earth who's in heaven. And there are several conversations. I'll read one to illustrate the idea of the danger of thought, the danger of thinking without learning to love. And then the next time I speak with you, I'll read a section from The Great Divorce illustrating the danger of trying to love without thinking. The context is this. The bright person who's lived in heaven meets this ghost-like person. They both knew each other on earth as theologians. One theologian went to hell. The other went to heaven. The bright person from heaven's been explaining the realities of their past lives and what reality in heaven is like. When the ghost says, and I pick up the quote here, after the bright person's been explaining reality, the ghost says, well, this is extremely interesting, said the Episcopal ghost. It's a point of view, certainly. It is a point of view, but in the meantime, the bright person interrupted, there's no meantime. All that's over. We're not playing now. I've been talking to you about your past, yours and mine, only in order that you may turn from it forever. One wrench and the tooth will be out. And you can begin as if nothing had ever gone wrong. White as snow. It's all true, you know. He is in me for you with that power. You've seen hell. You're now in the sight of heaven. Will you even now repent and believe? The ghost reply. Uh, I'm not sure that I've got the exact point you're trying to make. I'm not trying to make any points, said the spirit. I'm telling you to repent and believe. The ghost shot back. My dear boy, I, I believe already. Uh, we may not be perfectly agreed, of course, but uh, you have completely misjudged me if you do not realize my religion is a very real and very precious thing to me. Very well, said the other, as if changing his plan of attack. Will you believe in me? Will you come with me to the mountains further up into heaven? It will hurt at first until your feet are hardened. Reality is harsh to the feet of shadows. But will you come? The ghost thought and said, Well, that is a plan. I'm perfectly ready to consider it. Uh, of course, I should require some assurances uh, that you're taking me to a place where I'll find a, a wider sphere of usefulness and scope for the talents that God has given me and, and an atmosphere of free inquiry, in short, all that one means by civilization, the spiritual life. No, said the bright one, I can promise you none of these things. No sphere of usefulness, for you're not needed there at all. No scope for your talents, only forgiveness for having perverted them. No atmosphere of inquiry, for I will bring you to the land not of questions, but of answers. And you shall see the face of God. 
you think that because up to now you've experienced truth only as abstract intellectual concepts, I will bring you where you can taste truth like honey and be embraced by truth as by a bridegroom. Your thirst shall be quenched. Listen, once you were a child, once you knew what inquiry was for, there was a time when you asked questions because you wanted answers. And you were glad when you'd found them. Become that child again. Even now. The ghost replied by quoting scripture. Ah, but when I became a man, I'd put away childish things. And in any case, religious and speculative questions are surely of a different level than that. The bright person replied, we know nothing of religion here. We think only of Christ. Come and see. Then the ghost said quickly, oh, that reminds me, bless my soul. I'd nearly forgotten. Of course I can't come with you. I have to be back next Friday, back in hell to read a paper. Uh, we have a little theological society down there. Oh, yes, there is plenty of the intellectual life there. Uh, not very high quality, perhaps. One notices a certain lack of grip. But that's where I can be of some use to them. I, I feel I can do a great work among them. But you you've never asked me what my paper's about. Oh, oh, must you be going? Oh, well, so must I, said the ghost. It's been a great pleasure. Most stimulating, most provocative. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. And the ghost goes back to hell, to his theological debating club, and leaves heaven. Yes, there's a danger to learning. There's a danger to thinking that does not turn to love. But there's an equal danger of not loving thoughtfully, of not knowing and learning in a disciplined way. And so I'd like to put those thoughts before you to think about for this semester, that we become passionate lovers of the truth who are learning to become truly loving. Let's pray. Father, many of us need to confess this morning a lack of discipline, a lack of humility, a lack of desire to seek the truth. And many of us will want to blame it on busyness and distraction, but deep in our hearts, we know it's because we've not decided to be true seekers. Help those of us in that position to repent this morning and to set our feet on a path to become passionate pursuers of truth, seekers and lovers of truth. 